you got to throw the flag, okay? I, I will. It's just if, if need be, I will. And you got the yellow flag anywhere so you could just toss it? I got a, I got a blue flag. <laughs> <laughs> because if the stories go on a little bit, they get a little involved. Like when I'm recording, you go into, you know, detail. Um, you got to pull me back out. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll be, I'll be mindful of that. I, I promise you. I'll be I'll back uh, out of there. I'll be on top of it. But you got it. You set it up because you could weed off all these connective tissue artists. And I don't know, that one might be the best way to do it. You tell me. All right. But we're live now and we got some folks. Paul Quinn says, happy Sunday, John and Gary. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, since we know we're going to have a lot of stuff to talk about, uh, Gary, it's so great to see you, my friend, for so many years and to be doing this. And thank you so much for doing it. You got it. John, you're the, the true gentleman in the business right there, sir. You are. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored, man. It's, I've known you for years. Yeah, yep. <laughs> and and this, is, this, is, this is something I've wanted to do for a long time. So um, I'm just glad we can do this. And we were just, everybody watching at home, we already got a whole bunch of folks watching. We were just um, saying that we could probably spend an hour or more just talking about the Moondance record. So we're going to try to cover a lot of stuff here um, because Gary's done so much work. Uh, but I'm going to just jump in. And, and the Moondance record, I've been in prepar or in anticipation of this, been listening to it start to finish. The other day, uh, we were down at our place on the vineyard, and I was cutting the grass, and I put the Moondance record on, and I, I played it through twice in the time it took me to, to mow the lawn. It took a while, but... Talk about a masterpiece, and I, I just wanted to get your your thoughts and some you know anecdotes on that, and and the fact that you were twenty in your early twenties when you yeah. recorded that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's how did, yeah. there's a lot to that, John. There, there's a lot of screenplay information that led up to that. So yeah, <laughs> and and part of it was you meeting Van in New York, going to see him. Yeah. Um, I'm going to try to encapsulate everything as much as possible. So there's a lot of editing here. Okay. Yes. Yeah, because yeah. this could go on at least for 45 minutes. I'll, I'll bring it down to like, <clears throat> you know, look, this whole thing started off. All I really wanted to do is be in one band. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah, I just yeah. wanted to be in one band and let's go guys. Let's make this happen. Let's let's, here we go. Okay. Instead, I got 25, and I'm okay with that. I mean, yeah. but, you know, like everybody else out there, all the men and women that are doing this and playing, you know, really, it started wanting to be with one unit, and let's go. Uh, and it turned into that. Yeah. So once that – I'm originally from up, up, upstate New York, in, in Buffalo, New York, and that city at the time <clears throat> growing up was – just a cauldron of incredible music. So once again, to edit that down, I mean, I heard the best of everything all the time. And at a very young age, I started studying when I was five. And it was all really studying. Uh, there was no drum kit allowed. So until I was about nine, I had to go through about three books and just totally rudimental. And that's how we did it <clears throat> then. 
But I got a, I had a chance to to really absorb, you know, all of the music that was coming at me, and it was a golden age because I heard the best of all the jazz, all the R and B, all the blues, all the beginning of rock and roll starting. You know, to, you know, I was listening to Little Richard when I was seven, mm-hmm. so that had to make a you know, yeah, and then sure. turn around and you're listening to Miles and you're listening to Coltrane and Dave Brubeck and you're, you're going, and all of that is becoming part of you. So once we got up, you know, and, and my opportunities to play in bands in that city was astounding. I mean, I was playing, I was a junior in high school and, and at the time I was in a band uh, and we were working five nights a week and going to high school. And my <laughs> teacher... Knew it. <laughs> so he arranged for me to not have to go to homeroom and just say, just come up to the band room. I know what you're doing. So just do this. And we became music students. You know, he only had like 12 music students for the four wow. years. So it, yeah. was, it was music and band and music and band and read and read and do and go and absorb. And what was great about it was he allowed me to. Uh, uh, <clears throat> reverse engineer everything I brought to him. I said, what is going on here in this? And we did that. So that was kind of a, you know, I, that was a game changer that yeah, I, I yeah. received that recording information without really knowing it. So shorten it up. Eventually our band, we put together a band through other bands, a, a band that was called Raven. And we put that band together and we journeyed from, Buffalo, New York, into New York City, and our manager at the time, his name is Marty Angelo, he made everything happen, and he pulled it together. Long story short, true story, uh, we were playing, we became the house band at the Scene Club, which was during that time, 68, 69, that was where all the English bands would come over and congregate. And the owner of the club, he said, you got to listen to this guy, these tapes of this band, and and happened to be... uh, a guy named Eddie Kramer and the other guy was named Jimi Hendrix. And they told the mm-hmm. people at CBS, you better check these guys out. That led to our album on Columbia. And we made a run at that. Mm, long story, kind of didn't connect up. But at the same time I was in New York City, um, I knew about Van Morrison. Van Morrison became my, uh, uh, that became my special special person. I listened to what he was doing, mainly on an album called Astro Weeks. Yeah. Because sure. I listened to that album. My roadie had that album and he he said, look, I just got this from Warner Brothers. You gotta check this out. And I did and I said, oh man, this guy's he's light years ahead of everybody. Yeah. I'm going, what is he? So found out he was playing at the I'm, I'm editing here. Found yeah, out he was yeah. playing in, in New York City. <laughs> And the East Village over at the Gaslight Club, and I went down and I said, "Oh, that's when I first met Jeff Labes, the piano player from uh, from the Moondance Band." And I realized they didn't really have a drummer, so I talked to the. I said, "Do you mind if I bring my drums in tomorrow night? I'll carry them down, and can I just jump in here, please?" No kidding. Hey, okay, no money. I'm okay. Don't worry about it. Okay, I'm going to edit forward. And about, about f- we started rehearsing in Van's house in Woodstock. Um, and um, I was on for the ride, and his manager at the time was Lou Merenstein, and he said, we're going in the studio, coming the fall, late fall, almost Christmas, and uh, 
that became the beginning of the moon dance. Wow. Yeah, and that's yeah. exactly how it happened. And that unit, I refer to those guys, there was an immediate chemistry, and you could hear it. John Platani on guitar, Jeff Labes, John Klingberg, uh, Colin, and, and, and John uh, Jack Shore. And there was a real, a real chemistry. And Absolutely. Then, yeah. I heard it. And we went in the studio mainly with Ellie Shiner over at AR Studios on 6, uh, 646th Street. And we camped out there for a few days and Van was just let us go. And we and we tried everything. We were yeah. just let, let's take after take if you know, let's let's okay, can we do the hey Van, can I do this? Can I you know I'm I'm there with the guy that you know made Astro Weeks and I'm going, oh boy. Here we go. This is like going from really a very little bit of success to, uh-oh, something's going to happen here. Yeah. And then yeah. Uh, we, we approached the tunes, and we just had a, we had fun with them. Um, I said, I got a rhythm pattern for this one, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the story's about Go ahead, ask me about any one of those songs. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. well, I, I, we're definitely going to talk about um, the vibraphone part. And, uh, oh. And crazy love, but I, but I, um, and so what I've always wondered is, so when you guys went in there, you had some ideas of the arrangements, but you were still kind of forming them in the studio. It was well, well, actually, um, uh, we were actually we actually rehearsed several times in Van's house in Woodstock. Yep, almost at the same time, we're actual Woodstock was sixty miles down the road. Because it wasn't in, it was yeah. you know history, and we were doing that homework while that was going on. I thought we <laughs> jumped on that concert and played it, but it, it didn't happen. And Woodstock at that time was everybody was up there: John Sebastian, the beginning of the band, Dylan, uh, you know, all of yeah. that, that. That whole yeah. Crew. So those rehearsals went on then, and then we wound up. Uh, things hesitated for a while, then we started playing some shows with, with the Moondance band. And then we wound up uh, later that year, end of 69, we were in studio. I see. So you were kind of, so you were kind of like writing the tunes. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and playing them and tightening them up at the end of the shows. Yes. And, and I remember when Van first played Moondance, I looked at Jeff and Jeff was classically trained and he was just a wonderful player. And I looked at him and I said, and I, I went like this, just, with the bebop movement in the hand, yeah. said, you know what, we got to do that one, except we have to keep it somewhat condensed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we reached that, you know, we reached that agreement, you know, once once we cut that. But there, I, there was only one or two takes of Moondance. Um, uh, and I think about 12 years ago or something like that, uh, Warner Brothers, called me to tell me that they're going to put out the anniversary of Moondance. And they used all of the outtakes. No and kidding. I was shocked. Yeah, they, they did that. And I was like, wow. Okay. I have, so that's, a, I have to buy that. That's, it has all and, alternate versions of. And for you, Cole. <laughs> that's the symbol. Oh, that's the symbol. Look at that. Wow. 22. 20, uh, 21. See, it's, uh, can you see this? I can see, see the keyhole, yeah. See where it's, where, yeah, I was a little, uh, 
I wasn't paying a lot of attention then. There was a little bit too much going on. And I go, uh-oh, I better stop. And and uh, so there it is. It's in the garage with all the rest of them. And not to jump far ahead, but so that's yeah. not the same symbol on like um, um, like the Joe on on the fly like an eagle. Miller? No, no, that's no. that's in the garage too. I can okay. No, that one. I've got the other one from from that. Uh, we're going to get to that. Yeah, yeah we'll get, get to that later. But but um, back to Moondance. Um, Van was wonderful. He allowed us to do whatever we wanted. We'd suggest something. Yeah, hey, let's put the horns. Uh, through the Leslie for Into the Mystic and, and Into the Mystic was like, you know, uh-huh. instant. That was him starting it. And as soon as I heard it, I was like, and I'm hearing the mix because the engineers and Elliot, then the engineers during that time, they made the headphones sound like a finished recording, like you're inside the record while you were playing it. Wow. It wasn't just some random uh, headphone mix. It was yeah. actually, they would treat it like, Oh, add some echo and whatever the special effect was. We're hearing. I'm going. Oh, this is. We're really doing what I'm really hearing, for real. Okay, here we yeah. go. So that helped out. And okay. then we would we would add. You know, if we did some percussion overdubs or stuff like that. Uh, I invented a couple of the the drum beats and skip beats and stuff like that. We did a song called Glad Tidings from New York, and then we got around yeah. to doing Crazy Love and. You know, we talked about Crazy Love, and I said, oh, this is just Van Morrison's soul music. This is just, I mean, he's using his falsetto. Listen to this thing. We got to give this a treatment. So after we cut the track, and I used real tight brushes, and we brought yep. the mics down and brought the mics in, and I said, this is going to be really soft. I told Elliot, bring him down. I'm going to play really soft. I'm not going to hit hard, but just grab that motion. Make sure you grab that motion. As soon as we finished it, being in New York City, I realized I saw over in, uh, that day in the studio the <clears throat> big golden set of Musser vibraphones that was delivered from SIR. They did not take them back, and they were still there. And I was like, going, <laughs> "Okay, here we go." Because I've been playing vibraphones since I was twelve years old. And just yeah, I was going to say, doing, okay, doing, yeah, just 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 for orchestration, not for not not that. Um, and, and I said, Van, can I put that on the, he said, oh, sure, go ahead. I'm going to read some things. So I told Elliot, I said, Elliot, mic it real close and I'm going to do a slow rotation. And I went to do that and I realized, oh, there are no mallets. (laughs) Cute. (laughs) And I was almost defeated. I said, hold on a minute. Is there a, is there a maintenance room or something? He said, yeah, check it out. So I found I was looking, I found craftsman screwdrivers at that time, and they had rubber handles on them, right? I didn't, couldn't find four to work with four, so I've had three. Oh. So that part was played by, with screwdrivers. Unbelievable story. And it came yeah. out beautiful. So then I wound up mixing. I stayed behind. Everybody went back up to Woodstock, and I said, I want to stay here. I want to sleep in the studio. Elliot, can I sleep in the studio? Sure, don't tell anybody. I'm going to stay here. We're going to start mixing in a day. Okay, I want to stay. I'm going to stay in Manhattan. And we did. And um, I admitted to Elliot. I said, you know, every time you turned around and we were mixing Moon Dance, I kept kicking the microphones up. <laughs> so that's why when you put the cut on, 
as soon as you hear Van say those first three words oh, and yeah. the vibraphone's hit, that's because they were knocked up each time we did a, a, a mixtape. I said, now they're where they should be. And <laughs> Good on you, Gary. That's why it sounds... That's why it sounds like it did, because the vibraphone is always mistreated. Yeah. They are never used as a major instrument to capture right. the flow, and I, and, and I pushed it up. And not to take anything, Ben's vocals are so beautiful in that oh. song, but the vibraphone part that you play, the way it just it fills the whole thing, it's just it's, it's Slow gorgeous. rotation. Um, my sound is a slow rotation, and I use very soft mallets, the gray musser mallets, the slow, the, and I usually use four. Yeah. But... I, I, I purposely use that because now one more thing about Van Morrison and all that stuff, those are real vocal takes. He never overdubbed a lead vocal. Wow. That is it. So whatever you're hearing on any of those, that's all, that's what you got. That's it. It's like he, he, he might do a few takes, but it's all, they all didn't real. Do a compilation and filling up the track and then picking the best phrase from each one. And then none of that. Yeah. One. That yeah. was just, yeah, that was like real stuff. There was no manipulate. You couldn't manipulate that. Just right. but, but there was no manipulation capabilities at that time. I think what I love so much about the record is, besides the cuts, I mean, the songs are timeless, but it sounds like a live recording in terms of everybody being in the room at the same time. And, and they were. Um, we were. Yeah. The horns yeah. were there. Everybody was playing at the same time. John Platania played that beautiful guitar stuff. And... One other thing I didn't agree with, it, we had cut more, we had cut one more great song that should have been in that package. And it was a song called I Shall Sing. And it had the same ambiance of that, those weeks of recording. Yeah. And for some reason, somebody at, at Warner Brothers, they said, no, well, let's leave this one off the package. So Artie Garfunkel comes along and does an album called Angel Claire. And does that song, our exact arrangement. And I went, they should hear ours. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted that to be included in the Moondance package, but there you well, go. Maybe, maybe in the, I guess Somewhere. this is, yeah, this is the 50th anniversary. I think this year, right. It came yeah. out in 70. Yeah. 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 Maybe yeah. Be I, some... you know, and and uh, to, to, to go from, you know, to go from sort of a, well, not really. I don't want to, say the band was a negative but but to go from that waiting to jump into a record like that was like what just happened how did that how did that come up but you know yeah in my heart working with them during those years was was that that was a i heard him and i said no i gotta work with this guy i have to work with this guy there's something there wow i gotta have to be part of that I heard talk it. about yeah no I, I you you did and and I, and yeah I know you and I have talked about this a million times but I mean just talk about a legacy talk about just if you'd only played on that one record you'd go down in history as one of the greatest drummers of all time just on that record alone but yeah. then all this other stuff well after, after that we we did Tupelo Honey and then we did Saint Dominic's Preview. And we did, I did three more with him. I did uh, Hard Nose on Highway and Philosopher's Stone and uh, On the Road. It, yeah, it was, it, there were six, six albums I did with him. And then we did a little single called Cleaning Windows. I wanted to do more, but then he moved back to Ireland and England. Mm-hmm. And everybody just, you know, you know how it happens. Everybody just flies. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say a shameless plug. My band plays Into the Mystic, and it's one of the most enjoyable songs. I try to channel you when I play it, of course. (laughs) No real success. A few years back, I I spoke to John Platania. John's from Poughkeepsie, and he's, he's just a wonderful guy and player. And I and we were talking about stuff with Van and, and Van did some other concerts, you know, years back. And I said, gee, John, you know, if, if Van went out and said uh, Van Morrison and the Moondance Band, he could buy Ireland, the entire yeah. country, if he would do that. If he with yeah. the original guys from that unit, I thought that would be a stellar concert to have the guys be there and uh, and pull off in sequence the whole record. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah, it could. It, yeah. it would be, but to no avail. Well, Gary, yeah. just before you got a question from uh, Anthony Cursina, and he's asking if if there are three books that you could that you worked on when you were coming up that you might recommend, or three three drum books that. Um. This is this is this is ironic. Out in my second studio, out in the garage, out there. I kept also all the books. They're there with all the notes in them. Don't ask how this happened. This just mm-hmm. happened. Um, um, yes, I should go get them. No, we can't do that. Um, one by Jim Chapin. Jim, I, yeah. I studied with Jim Chapin. I took about three lessons with Jim Chapin in New York City. Wow. Okay. And uh, he yeah. put out a book. Yeah. And then the Goldenberg book. And then one called Rolling in Rhythm. Um, uh, they're out there. And what about like Stick Control? Did you, you must Oh, Stick Control, yes. Absolutely. Stick control. Yeah. Yeah. We, I went through Stick Control when I was uh, 11. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say. So, and then, so, you know, that. Ex- yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we talk about, you know, training and, and, and studying and, 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 and all of that stuff. Uh, <clears throat> What I would do with that is 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 because I read since age of five and a half, six years old, and read and you know was in the grammar school orchestra and and then all four years of high school, which was the high school years were golden because of my teacher was my first teacher playing Brunus and and we were just exploring every piece of music that. That, that was there. Every, every yeah. question yeah. was answered. And and along with the rudimental drumming, uh, I attacked the set in a different way because I was, I was, there wasn't one category of music that dominated, you know, mm-hmm. I just found, you know, when you're very young and you're hanging out with guys in the neighborhood and everybody's got their bicycles and you're all just, you know, killing each other and doing what we did then, which yeah, was what you do. fairly dangerous. You know, I don't know how I came out of this. Um, what happens in, in, in those years is that, you know, you, you separate yourself a little bit from the pack because I had, thank God, I had a nine-transistor GE radio with all of the channels marked, and it was strapped to my bike. So most of the times the guys would see me missing. I'd hear something, and I'd go, shoot home, jump on the drums that were set up in one corner of the living room, driving everybody crazy because we, you know, and playing along with the stuff. Now, one more thing um, that I have to make sure everybody understands. We did not have the technology in those years to really 
Yeah, I mean, you can go to Guitar Center today and dad could spend a couple grand and you're set up. You're ready. Hey, you're ready to go. At the, on my record player, <laughs> there wasn't even a jack to plug in headphones. This did not exist. And you know, it wasn't that it was living in the Civil War, but the technology just right. was not. We didn't have that guitar center. We didn't have that stuff. So yeah. I had to uh, invent. So I built two stands with in wood, so I could take the two speakers that would unhook and slam them against me, right, and get in between them and play along with the records. And believe me, that was wonderful to be able to do that. It was early like, headphones. Yeah, that's all yeah. I did. Well, we didn't yeah. have the tech. There was no. Sure. All we needed was a jack. Then you think they could at least give us that? But I know. Yeah. Okay. So I got a question here from my friend Tim Jackson here in Boston, asking if you've read uh, Ryan Walsh's Walsh's book Astro Weeks. Uh, great Boston history. Went to a reading. Met his drummer, Jao Bebo. I don't know. He's asking if you know Jao Bebo. I don't know. Well, I know all about Astro Week because I, dis I discussed Astro Weeks with Van, and uh, Van's manager at the time was Lou Marenstein, and I got the e exact story about Astro Weeks. And basically, to sum up Astro Weeks, that was basically kind of what we call a Frankenstein record. Mm -hmm. Those cuts, Van cut by himself, right? Uh, then... yeah. Lou Merenstein, they said, look, we're going to sweeten this stuff up. And that's what they did. And I believe the, the concert master on that stuff was a man named David Applebaum, I believe. And the great jazz bass player, I think it was Leroy Vinegar. He was the star of that album. Mm -hmm. And if you listen to some of those cuts, you go, whoa. I mean, they were just playing. He was playing so free. And you yeah. go, how did they pull that off? Well, Van had cut that prior, and then they just went up to it and sweetened it underneath. And I think just did a brilliant job in yeah. pulling that off. I mean, that that was excellent work for me. Now, that, that works for me. It may not work for the next person, but, you know, this whole industry is about what, what, what connects with you and other people. Yeah. Absolutely. You know. And there's a there's a question here, Gary. Um, did you ever study with Louis Marino? I did not study with Lou Marino. Lou Marino is a wonderful jazz drummer from my hometown in Buffalo, New York. Um, my teachers were mainly uh, uh, Sam Skamaka, who taught me from mm -hmm. the ripe old age of six years old. He was then my high school teacher for four years, pulled off magic for me. And then mm -hmm. I studied with Jack Schilling. That was transitional. And then I studied with John Rowland from the Buffalo Philharmonic and George Deanna from the Buffalo Philharmonic. Wow, man. I, I went, made a feeble attempt at becoming a college student for two years. A <laughs> feeble attempt. Now, let me just describe it quickly to you. Uh, the years were uh, 67 and 68, and uh, the music world was on fire. Yeah. And there was no way after two years I was going to sit still. I just, I mean, John, there was no way you could sit yeah. still. I mean, do you remember the four guys from Liverpool? Oh, well, yeah. they were they were still out there playing their music. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not sitting here. 
I want to be in Chicago and I want to be over here in New York and I want to be in LA and San Francisco and I want to be in London. I want to be everywhere in the same day. So there was no way I was going to sit still any further. You just, I just had to get on the train. And that's what I did. Yeah. I got on the train. I took a big chance. I don't recommend that to anybody because it may not work out that way. Some people can pull it off, but it was like, it was magic stuff. It was a magic time. And it was just no way I was going to sit still. And, you know, I'll say, too, that you were well-equipped to do it. You know, and I was, I'm not saying other people aren't, but with all the training you had um, and, and, and the, you know, it, it's, it's obvious why you were successful because, you know, you weren't – you could go in, you could, you could read, somebody could hand you a chart, you could play it, you could play percussion, you had all this training, and you were, it was at a time when the music was just so, you know – prevalent and, and uh, robust it was such a robust scene you know? well yeah i mean let, let's look let's look at the era of time we were in you know um you know sometimes you're born at the right time and the right i mean my influences yeah. were really all of it i got to see and, and there was one more world of music that not many people really know about that i had in buffalo new york because for some reason, the world of the Hammond B3 organ was prevalent in my city. So Jimmy Smith and Jack McDuff and, 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 and Jimmy McGriff and all the great B3, Hammond the, B3 players, yeah, organ that bands, music, yeah. I mean, I went to see Jimmy Smith and it was Donald Bailey on drums and it was Kenny Burrell and it was like, oh, I'm watching that world of music along with all of the other worlds and I never dismissed any one world, but I never became a martyr for one category yeah, of music. Yeah. I, you know, I got in trouble one day with some of my jazz friends and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about it. And it was, I didn't realize it, but I said, well, you know, look guys, um, you know, I, oh, uh, you know, John Coltrane and Miles and, 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 and Dave Bubeck and, and Buddy Holly and all these, you know, and everybody, I started rattling off everybody and they were like, what? I said, they're the same people to me. And that didn't go over well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, because, you know, at that time, jazz was to, to be elevated a little bit further up. And, and, and I'm not going to talk about the rest of my differences with that one. But I said, there's something going on over there in that other world. And by the time we got to 1968, it was obvious that, that those portals of what we refer to as just being rock and roll, it's all kinds of stuff. But that was the world of experimentation. That's where I said, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. I got ahead there because I can then pull off all of this, what I'm hearing, and maybe be able to use it. We got invent, a plan. No, invent, invent, invent. I yeah. read, yes, read. Um, there are guys that are just really equipped to do that and love it, and I and 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 I respect all of it. You want to be a Philharmonic player, but once that other world opened up to me, I said, mm, I really, I think I'm going to be doing better with with a blank canvas than being able to read, which I can do. But I'd rather have the blank canvas. Now, yeah. a lot of people that may not good for, be good for. Right. It was good for me. That's yeah. where, and that's where I stay. 
Absolutely. And before I forget to, I had written down a question, something oh. I can't believe I never asked you. Okay. What, what drum set did you, what kind of drums did you play? Did you record Moondance with? What was the kit? It was probably, was it a studio kit or was it your personal kit? Oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. Was, was well, that, that's, that's why now I'm, I, I'm, I'm with uh, the people at DW and John Good and everybody because they knew I was on an early Camco kit. That's right. Okay. Early camp. Okay. With the, you know, the round lugs and I, you know, the history of DW is mm-hmm. they over Camco and, yep. and they saw me. I, I think John Good saw me on, he goes, Oh, you're at Ben Raven. You're, you're at the Fillmore East and you could, that's a camp. I said, yep. I said, they look pretty cool. And I was able to grab a kit like that and put a kit together. But you know, they don't, they know my recording stories because my recording kits were just, completely just irrational sets of stuff and, yeah, and hybrids and well, yeah, let's let's yeah. let's jump ahead to that if we can jump ahead to i know there was stuff in between but maybe we could jump ahead to fly like an eagle for example the um the drums oh, the, that you used the the miller era it was miller era uncle yeah. stevie it was, <laughs> it was just, had, well actually all these all this all these periods of time they actually flowed in between each other. Okay, it, one didn't stop and the other one started. They kind of just everything just kind of kept, you know, moving on that ocean yeah. like yeah. that. And and I had originally during my work with Van and then when Van had moved out to San Francisco, and I was out there in San Francisco with him. I stayed at his house, and at the once Moondance hit and Tupelo Honey hit and. That, that that was like uh, the key to the city. You know, I didn't know yeah. what those things were going to do. I, I mean, I, I, in the beginning, I'm not sure Moondance was that well received. There was no category for it. Yeah, and I guess so. Perfect. Yeah. And I, I love that. It was like, okay, we're breaking the rules, I guess. But there you go. Um, uh, I got a call up from a wonderful producer, Bruce Botnick, and a great jazz piano player named Ben Sidron. And they said, look, we want you to come in at Capitol Tower um, and track for Steve Miller, Steve Miller Band. And I already knew the Steve Miller Band from, you know, from his early San Francisco uh, right. groups. And they had uh, Living in the USA and, and Space sure, yeah. Cowboy and, you know, hey, somebody throw me a cheeseburger. They had a, <laughs> you know, and I was a fan. I was going, and then I, then, I, then I did a little research on Steve and I realized this guy really plays his guitar and he was part of the Chicago scene because he knows his blues. Yeah. I mean, he was playing his blues and he was going after the same gigs in Chicago that were occupied by Helen Wolf and Muddy Waters. Now that's some competition and he was there. So I said, okay, this guy's got blues woven into him and R and B. I'm, I'm going to like this because the rock and roll because of that is going to come out different yeah. just because yeah. you have that ingredient woven into you. You're yeah. going to play your rock and roll different. And I'm a big believer in that. I've always done that. So I went in and, and I played for Steve on an album called Journey from Eden, uh, we call the beginning. It was his transitional time from the San Francisco stuff to his next move. And uh, it was quite a day. And it was my first record with Steve. And then everybody just parted ways for a while. And I was doing all kinds of work. In, uh, in in Los Angeles at the time, all of a sudden, it just was recording, was just going and going and going. And, you know, I can't tell you how much that took over. 
you know, um, I was in and out of the studios and I would pass in the hallway with Keltner and, and Jimmy Gordon and, and we'd wave and make fun of each other and, and be nice <laughs> to each other. You can learn how to hold them sticks, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. And, and, and there was so much of that going on th- that, you know, eventually, uh, you know, uh, everybody then formed back together again. So you, you get a call up later on and, uh, and I did, uh, there was just tons of stuff going on in LA, you know, that I was on board. I worked with Paul Williams a yeah. lot with Paul. They yeah. called me yeah. in at AM, A&M records and I did all of Paul's work. And then I did a lot of work at AM records. We were kind of like staff musicians for a while over there. And there was a lot going on. I was on tour with Joe Walsh and Barnstorm and, and, doing tours with people like that and yeah. and then all of a sudden uh i get a call up and, it, and it's steve and he said look i want you to be on board um where i'm going to go after something i'm really really going to do some homework and i want you and lonnie turner to come up to my house up in Nevada, and uh here's the plan that began wow all yeah. of the stuff for Fly Like an Eagle and Book of Dreams, which had all the hits on them, because all that stuff was made in a very short period of time. Yeah, and it was that all was one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, I, I, yeah. Look, I told you you're going to have to throw the flag because if I start talking about this <laughs> stuff, you're going to have to go stop. All right. No, there's a lot I, of info here. And, I want to hear about it. And there's a lot of info, but, but, um, in our, in our meeting with Steve, he said, look, um, Things are beginning to happen. I cut this, this, this song called The Joker. And I said, yeah, I know. I've been hearing it. I, I said, I'm really glad for it. He goes, but um, I want to make an, these albums that really do a diverse set of music. We're going to yeah. go from this to this. And, and I want to invent. And so I said, okay, what are we going to do? He goes, let's come up to the house and talk about it. We're going to go to... CBS Studios on Folsom Street in San Francisco. And can you stay here for as long as it takes? I said, that's all I want here. Let's go. <laughs> here we go. I said, yeah. all right, here we go. Now I got something for you, and I didn't tell you about this. You ready? Okay, I'm okay. ready. I didn't tell you about this. All right? Okay. This, this is the original tape. Of all of that work. Oh my gosh. And it was at night when we would come home. They gave us these. These are called cassette tapes. Remember? Kind of new at the time, probably. Well, maybe not so new, but. This is all the original takes right here. I've already transferred it digitally, but that's what we used to bring home. And I stayed at Steve's house and we worked. So hard on this stuff. Let me let me just put this down. We worked. Yeah. Wow. And I said, really, I said to Steve, I said, look, can I come up with some stuff here? <laughs> <laughs> he said, yeah, you have free reign. That's why you're here. Go. What do you hear? What do you think? And me and Steve and Lonnie would really discuss. Now, those albums with the majority of those hits, the Steve Miller band was really a trio. That was it. Yeah, Not a lot of yeah. people know that. They think of a band, there's four or five guys. But it was just Steve and me and Lonnie. And we basically 
really did engineer ourselves at the same time. So we were kind of doing it all. And as we were running these songs down, I would say to Steve, can I put an intro on this one? (laughs) And he always said yes. I mean, Steve in those years was just completely ready for all of it to happen. Yes, let's, come on, what do you got? Let's go, come on, let's go, let's go. I mean, that's a special time. Sometimes you get in the studio with people and it's a little uptighter. Then they already have a preconception of where this thing should go. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but. Talk Steve about let, intros too. Yeah. Man. He, he let, he let me go. And, 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 um, oh, prior to that, I worked with Ben Sidron, the keyboard player who introduced me yeah. to Steve. And we, prior to that, a few years prior to that, we, we did an album for Paul Pina. Paul Pina is the guy that wrote Jet Airline. Oh, we did this okay. album in Boston, and it was quite a record. Paul Pino was like, he's no longer with us, but I couldn't, Paul was a, just a soulful black kid, and he was he was blind, and he was just terrific. So that was one of the songs that Ben and me brought to Steve, and then we eventually did that, and all of a sudden, this cauldron of activity, we were like, oh, it started to boil over. He goes, can you stay here for another two weeks? How about another month? Go, let's go. I'm free. Let's do whatever you want to do. Let's just, just the music was yeah, keep, it was coming keep, out. Keep going. And it was Steve with his guitar and his amp and a mic and Lonnie on bass and me on drums. And there was only one photograph of all those recording sessions that would have ever taken. And it's me on my kit that I actually used for Eagle. Yeah. And all those cuts, all the hits, everything that came out of there, um, there was only one that we cut as a uh, quartet. And that was with wonderful B. Once again, here we go back to my B3 training and yeah. knowing the B3 and all of that B3 music. And I talk of that world because not a lot of areas had that world of the B3. And I said, he said, well, Wahim Young is in town. He's going to be auditioning for Santana and blah, blah, blah. He said, I'm going to bring Wahim Young in for one song. And he said, I've been trying to cut this song forever. And I can't get it. Not the way I'm hearing. And that was Eagle. And we did Fly Like an Eagle. We did three takes. And we used take two and take three. So everything you hear is all played for real. And what happened was we had to jump to take three. Luckily, I actually kept the same tempo. Oh. Bringing up tempos. All of these recordings, there are no clicks. Okay. No tricks, no clicks, no generation of computer stuff that didn't exist. So this is just count. Here we go. This is right. This is right. This is the right tempo. Getting the tempos right is is so important so the song can breathe. That's very important, getting those tempos right and then holding those tempos. So we did it in Wahim came in and all that playing is all that B3 school of playing. And uh, during take two, one of the microphones began began to depress and it uh, fatigued. Crack, boom, okay, here we go again. And at that point we had to cut. Had to, it was, now today you could just go in it and just digitally move it or remove it and then come back in. But uh, so that's how that, that came to be because didn't really he didn't really get a track on that 
prior in the prior years because that original guitar riff came from an old song, which which was called My Dark Hour, My Darkest Hour. And oh, okay. I talked to Steve about we talked about all this stuff and we'd get up in the morning, we'd have breakfast and Steve, you know, and we were talking about everything, every song, and we went over it and over it. And he said, I, I just can't, I don't have the track yet. I said, well, really, it's an R&B feel. It's really an R&B kind of funk flow underneath. And if we could, I know, you know, you know, I, I don't know what Capitol Records is going to think, but that's the way it should feel. So we should just go ahead with it. And, and, and you know, th that's what we did. And then uh, Steve invented all of the space sounds, all of the, you know, all the stuff that was woven into it. Yeah. And he invented that, just him and his guitar and, uh, and uh, the original Echoplex, the gray Echoplex. Yeah. And you could just move it. And that's how we did it. Wow. Yeah. No, no yeah. computers. There was no tricks. The only trick is what we could manufacture, you know, um, right then and there. But that was just the one cut. Those two albums uh, allowed us to tour for 12 years. And we did all of those stadium shows. That's when, you know, I, I go back and I think about it and I go, here's a world that the Beatles invented and they didn't even have a chance to use it. I know. Yeah. Think about it. I, I mean, know. if you You're really right. think of, and, and you think of the time continuum in what the immensity of the work that they did that made, I mean, let's face it, those guys and everything that came out of it, thank God everybody came along. All the bands, yeah, all of them, yeah, yeah, made a lot of work for everybody, and it raised, you know, that 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 generation was there, ready to party and ready to concert. So it became yeah. that era of football. Well, let's exactly. move it into a football stadium. Exactly, and you're right. They 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 did a couple, a handful of shows, and then they were done with it. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and, and that went on for for quite a few years, and. Uh, it's amazing to think that the sound systems that we had with Steve Miller band was from Shelco out of Texas. And it was like a million and a half dollars worth of equipment. I mean, the Beatles played Shea stadium and their voices came through the speakers that were on the posts. Unbelievable. And you, and I you know. think about it that and you go, what? Yeah. Really? Did that really happen? I mean, no stage monitors. Those no, no monitors. Ringo yeah. moved his own drums and I'm going, man, that's talent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know. It's amazing. Let's let's face it. You know, they came along at the right. They all came along at the right time because that was like, huh, thank you for yeah, making yeah. it. And, and then all of that music came out of that. You know, all yeah. everything that, you know, all great rock and roll, Sly and the Family Stone. I, that was one of my favorite drummers because I loved uh, Eric. Right. Playing, yeah, playing Greg Spies, Eric, yeah. Because I related that to that music quite a bit because it just you know some of that i was at cbs records with the raven band and i knew don palouse and he played me their demo and he said wow. well here's the band for i said that's not a demo that's not a demo it can't be a demo. <laughs> that's a and that was the first album wow and i'm going that's not a demo man no way that's a record <laughs> So back, I want to jump back to fly like an eagle because there's throw, throw so the flag. Many, you should have thrown the flag. No, this this is great. Right. It can't. There's too much good stuff, man. Okay. Um, 
drum, you know, I've, I, a couple of people have talked about intros here. John Rogers, the intros to take the money and run Swingtown. Um, how do they come about? And we could, but I mean, I we want to talk about that, but I just have to say, there's some of the greatest. I was 15 years old in 1976 when Fly Like an Eagle came out, and I played April of 1976. I played that record nonstop, like through the rest of that year trying to learn those fills. And I'll just say, <laughs> years later, my band started writing original songs and I stole yep. so many of your licks. We did this song called Pay Your Way in Gold and I was playing <laughs> and, and the guys in the band were loving it and I had to cop to it and say, well, you know that guy that plays with Steve Miller? Okay, for you? Okay? Yeah. I said I was going to do something for you. Hope. You always do stage, things for me. Stage. Okay. Right, left. Okay. Hang on. Here it is. You mean this guy? Look at that. That is the symbol. That is the, and that's what it looked like when you recorded with it, right? I mean, it's yeah, pretty much. Pretty cute, huh? It's dangerous. You can now, use I it for a saw blade. You could. Um, and looking at it, I think it might be an actual pang, not a switch. I think it by the edges. Um, they look. Whatever was on it, I know it's a Zildjian. As a matter of no. fact, I drilled it over here to stop. Anyway, um, this Maybe is uh, this is keep on rocking me. Yeah. Now I'll tell you about keep on rocking when I had that symbol. We did have an uh, an assistant engineer in with us because Mike Vassar, good guy, and me and Mike used to go at each other a little bit, friendly. And Mike, when we started playing that and and we had that intro, Mike said, "You got to get rid of that symbol." And I said, Mike, you know, you've just really started me off on the wrong foot. <laughs> so now what we're going to do is we're going to get a mic and we're going to put a mic on that symbol and you're going to turn it up. He said, OK. Oh, yeah. I said, please, <laughs> let's make sure we hear it. OK, because I never liked some of the stereo mixes that they did with those big overheads way up there. I said, and those two overheads that are six feet up there, we're not cutting a jazz album. You're going to bring those two overheads down and we're going to pick the symbol up so you can really, really hear it because yeah. we're cutting something different. This is a different. This is a different cake mix. OK, yeah, here different we go. Sounds everything. Yeah. yeah. And he I said. If that record does something, you're going to have to buy me dinner for the next year. Well, I let him off the hook because it went to number one. I let him, <laughs> and I did, would just look at him, and we'd come in the room, and I'd just look at him, and I'd start smiling. He goes, okay, okay. I said, I'll have the fish and chips. Please, the salad. Mike, let's go. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and cutting that song, okay, the, the reason why we came, we came up with that, that song is – Really, on the concerts, we realized, look, we just need a straight-ahead eighth, eighth note rock and roll song. Just straight-ahead. Yeah. Just. Yeah. And and out of necessity uh, came, well, keep on. I said, well, you know, it, it goes back to the earliest days of rock and roll, you know, like, uh, you know, well, let's mention mention some cities or mention this or mention yeah. that. Yeah. And then when we play there, it'll be like, a, and it worked. And, and 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 it was just it was needed. 
It was needed in the conscience. We didn't have a straight ahead eighth note rock and roll song. Yeah, but you know what, Gary? You're being too humble because there's a lot more going on with that song. Yeah, what you play. There, yeah. You know all those those accents that you're playing. Those. You well, know, take the money and run. Take the money and run was was that was a feat. That was that was really. Uh, me and Lonnie Turner conferred on that. Lonnie, I said, Lonnie, you have to stand right near me. And when we're going to go to those accents, because we're not reading music, we could chart it out, but please, let's not stick our head in the paper because it's not going to sound right. Let's just yeah. watch each other. We'll, we'll throw, I'll throw up a number. So if we're going to do two hits, and, and, and as I'm playing, I, I could throw up one or I could throw up two. And, and we could go to those hits so we could wow. play them very smoothly. And then as we were doing this, I said, Steve, can I – put an intro on this. I said, sure. Yeah, go ahead. And I did one and I'll go, then I stopped. I said, no, okay, no, no. Okay, let me do another one. I said, if I don't stop, please keep going. <laughs> and we finally got to the one that was the hit that became, yeah. it did yeah. what it did. And we kept going. And every one of those hits, Lonnie was on me like, like this. And I was on Lonnie. It was just the three of us in there. And, he was leaning over the baffle, and I, yep. and I said, "Watch, let's stay on." And I go, "One, Man. two, one, two. And that's how we. That's how we pulled that song off. Were all the intros takes? Were they was was the intro pretty much the same or pretty close each time? Like you, except you... Swing Town. Now Swing yeah. Town, Swing Town. I'll, yeah. I'll tell you the truth on Swing Town. You want to hear it? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to get hell for this one. Okay, here we go. Ready? Oh, yeah. Here we go. All right. The pattern on Swingtown, when I was going to the University of Buffalo, my once again, my feeble attempt at the college student stuff, you know, remember that? Okay. I was in marching band for those two years, you know, actually in marching. I said, okay, this is good. 14 piece. And I was ahead of the drum section. I was. And I brought to my musical director, I said, look, I got a cadence. Can we play this instead of that? He said, no, we got to stay with the syllabus and we have to do this. I go, come on, let, let, let me try it. Everybody's here. Let me try it. I have a, a film of that, that we couldn't, they wouldn't play it. So I put it away. And that became, that was swing time. That was so I boiled it down to me playing the bass drum part. I couldn't do the tom part. So yeah. I boiled it down to that. Yep. Yep. Now, what happened in the studio was we were doing that song, and that didn't exist. There was no rhythm pattern on that song. So once again, it became, well, do I say anything because I'm really composing this tune? Or but since I was the freshman in the band, I had to kind of be a good boy yeah. and be yep. quiet. But actually, if, if you think about it, it really became like a, a Ravel's Bolero. Because the, the the rhythm pattern was integral to the writing of the song. It it is now associated with that song. But in the beginning, that didn't exist. So when Steve left the room, he had to talk to somebody at Capitol Records. I leaned into Lonnie, I said, This song is going nowhere. This song needs to sound like it's coming from somewhere. Mm. Like it's coming from somewhere. Because it's going, this is we're not doing anything. So I said, Lonnie, play a bass line to this. I'm going to start kicking this off. It's the same tempo. So I started playing that beat, and I condensed it down. And then Lonnie, 
added doom 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 doom. Yeah. Steve comes running in, jumps on the microphone, click through our headphones. He said, don't stop. He goes, okay, keep going. Okay, now stop, roll, start. And that's how we did it when we faded up. It was just me. Yeah. So we faded it up from that. But once again, it was my knowledge. To me, it's always in, in, in my assessments of every player and every band and whatever they're doing, it's not personal, but it's composition. Yeah. Composition yep. in my book always comes first, not anything else. You know, what is it that we're playing? That's really important. And yeah. that's what I said. Yep. This song's got to come from somewhere. And that's how that was invented. So uh, the, the marching band at University of Buffalo, they, 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 I said, well, you missed that one, guys. So uh, we're going to use it on this record. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really a marching cadence. That's, that's where it came from. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that groove. And my friend Tim Jackson's pointing out, I was going to ask you this question. I don't know if you've heard the isolated drum track to Fly Like an Eagle. The, the song that you it's like on YouTube or someplace where there's yeah, yeah. Somebody, somebody, somebody said somebody took that apart. Now, how do they do that? I, I, I mean, I'm working Pro Tools 10, 11, and 12, and I'm going now. Who did they get a hold of the master? I don't or is know. there you something know, that can strip it down? I'll text you the link to it because I've heard it and it's it's definitely you, it's yeah. not somebody copying yeah. it, and yeah. it's unbelievable when you hear what you play in the isolated track. It has a, you have an well. I everybody else you might not feel this way, but but all of us humans have a much greater appreciation than we already have for that song because it's unbelievable when you hear Somebody it. Somebody said that they heard it and they said that they were discussing the part where we clipped it together and they. they I said, well, gee, all they had to do is call me and ask me, and I would tell them, yeah, this is what happened, and you could have the accuracy of the story. But all, just let me say something. Because of what happened in my hometown and being able to play five nights a week and an afternoon, yeah. to be doing that amount of playing constantly at a young age, there is no substitute for that. Yeah. Just, yeah. So once you get into the studio, you, and you're, it, it, being in the studio is, is, is like medical training. You're, you're, you're hearing yourself back and you're improving and you're going, okay, and you, and, and you do that enough. Because that's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to make records. I, I, I didn't want to be the greatest this or that. I just, right. I want to be in this record. I want to be in that, that amount of information. So that amount of playing that you do live, that's where it took its toll. Because yeah. you were able to keep, and, and, and it still worked today. It still works in every record I touch today. I, I don't, you don't have to run the click. Yeah. I, when I worked with Springsteen, same thing happened. You know, he just laid his guitars down. And we just, that was a big surprise. We're going to talk about that oh. in a second. I just want to okay. want to give a comment from my friend Aaron Comis, who plays with the band The Spin Doctors. Oh, fine. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Tell, I, I, I like those guys, man. Yeah. 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 He's a fine drummer. He said, hey, guys, absolutely love Gary's playing. What a feel. Yeah. Well, thank you, because <laughs> they made their, they made their, their appearance and, and and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's really cool and very precise and and yeah, I. He's a great player. Yeah, you know that was a, a different era of time, as we know each era that we go through. And I'm going, wow, 
Yeah, I, yeah. I wanted more. <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. I know. But they came along and it was a whole different sound. And It, it was, yes, yeah, it was. Aaron's playing and, yeah. That's one thing I wanted to say about, you know, rock and roll. I mean, what we call rock and roll, it, it, there's no real one definition for it anymore. And if you trace your history and you go back, you're talking almost 70 years of every decade of what we call rock and roll becoming a different animal. It's a completely different animal from decade to decade and whatever one band does to handle that and whatever spin they give that and whatever spin the next band gives it, you know, uh, you know, I have yeah. my favorite, but I judge my stuff purely on a compositional level first, not anybody's playing because everybody can handle the situation the way they want to. I'm not a judge of that. But it's always a compositional level. Then I, I can go in there and rack and go, eh, I don't like where the bridge went. Nah, 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 nah. But when it's right, oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Gary, can we talk just for a second about you mentioned the, that pic? I've seen that picture of your drum set from Fly Like an Eagle from those, oh, okay. from those records. But can we talk about it? It was, a, it was a hybrid kit of like concert toms or single headed toms uh, or a couple anyway, right? Yes couple single-headed toms and a couple double-headed toms and it was one of everything thrown in and it and and i like just pearl, went for ludwig. It, pearl and old blood it wasn't even a good ludwig it was one of the the, the you know the b-class ludwig <laughs> i said i don't care i got it to, i got it to tune up oh, oh 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 once again and there was a song on on, on that with 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 Steve, it was called Wild Mountain Honey, and it yeah. was a, what we called. And, you know, Steve was very famous. We'd get together and then we'd start making fun of ourselves. Sounds which, like there's tabla or something. In well, it. yeah. What we did was he goes he goes Malber. We need a Swami Daddy Osa, you know, one of those <laughs> FM, you know, real hippie FM tunes, man. I said, <laughs> okay. I said, well, why don't we go into that kind of Ravi Shankar area, but come up with something that's our own. Let's not use toplas or, you know, the stereotypical stuff. Let's, yeah. let's invent it from. So, you know, we based today with Pro Tools, you could do that easy. But we did that. I did 12 overdubs and started with just holding it steady. And yeah. then Steve started with the electric sitar and, and, and I tuned those were the, the little Ludwig and little Pearl and little Ludwig, no heads on the bottom. And I tuned them to his uh, sitar. I see. So, okay. So, yep. so that it would be in the same. Yeah. You know, yep. About an hour getting it right. And then, then I played those with uh, vibraphone mallets because I'm always playing that stuff with vibraphone mallets. So, Give it that softer sound. Yes. Yep. Yep. So we did hat and this and then we did the crystal and the glass and this and that. And then I did the tom-toms and, and we did about 12 overdubs. And that became, that was huge. They played. Beautiful song. Yeah. They played a, and I love that kind of drumming because it was so away from the kit. It yeah. was totally yep. orchestral. And, and I said, oh, okay, let's see what happens with this. You know, and, and they played every cut on that record oh yeah yeah Boy, you know it's a, a, a great um i know it was released as a single an album cut is the steak and every time i hear that song i go man what a great like just you know yeah. ballsy bluesy yeah. 
Yeah, and we cut once again. We cut that stuff. Most all of that was cut as a trip. Yeah, it's so yeah. that's all you had to go with. You didn't have all of the uh, all all of the uh, all of the flavors there, you know. But cutting as a trio to to me and to all the guys is I've talked to I talked to Jimmy Keltner about this years ago. I haven't talked to Jimmy in a long time, and and I and we agreed just. Give me a good sounding kit and a bass player that stays in the bass register and a rhythm guitar player. Let me say that again. <laughs> a rhythm guitar player who really loves playing rhythm and we can cut anything. Mm-hmm. That, those three pieces. Now, I left out yeah. the keyboard because the keyboard, once you add another instrument, that has to be the right part and the right sound executed in the right manner. So each time it becomes a math problem. Mm-hmm. But with three, if you get those three to work, you're on your way. Yeah. That yep. I've seen 99% of the time in all the work I've ever done. You get those three right and we're on our way. We, yeah. we can make that work. That's magic three. And you can hear me, that. That's just me talking, Nala. You don't have to agree with me. I'm just going to give you my experience. Okay. Well, you can you can hear that in those records, though, because it really what you hear mostly are you, Steve, and, and Lonnie. You know, yeah. just a lot of synthesizer parts, but but the the you know the nucleus of that sound is the three you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, the two main people in the Steve Miller band for me, number one was Lonnie. Lonnie wrote Jungle Love too, so he put that together. Yeah. That's a true story. Him and his Another great use of the China, too. In that yeah. And, and, the other, and, and the other bass player was Gerald Johnson. And Gerald, yes. Gerald literally wrote the Joker. I mean, that, that bass line with Steve. Yeah. Boom, boom, boom. They did that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, we spent a lot of time on the road when Lonnie and Steve would have sometimes a little falling out. Uh, Gerald came in and it went back and forth. Then we went on. And we cut Abracadabra together mm-hmm. with Gerald and me and Steve. Yeah and, yeah. and a lot of that material came out of my first home studio in Sherman Oaks here in California. Mm-hmm. And I had been doing a lot of work. And I told Steve, I got a lot of stuff here. You want to hear it? And it became about 80% of the Abracadabra album. And uh, I did my homework on that one with Steve and I got production credits because I was really paying attention to where Europe was at the time. Mm-hmm. I was going, oh, something's going on here. They seem to be moving to this one particular area area of tempo, not a specific tempo, but the area of tempo. They're moving. I'm watching this, and I'm going, if we cut this right there, and in doing so, my discussions with Gerald were very basic. I mean, Gerald told me one night, and I, I agree with him. He said, you know, if the car ain't got no engine, the car ain't going nowhere. And I said, <laughs> yeah, that pretty much covers it all. <laughs> no engine, you don't go nowhere. And it's true. And it, Gerald, his words were like, I said, yeah, that's that's golden. You're, you, you, yeah. you're right, man. That's correct. <laughs> and when you, when you were looking at a certain tempo, you were thinking like for Dan, because um, – yes. For dancing and yeah, clubs. I was watching. Bot- yes, yeah. yes. I was watching. I, I'm, I'm always, you know. Look, 
what I did from a very early age is I always reverse engineered everything that I heard. And I drove people crazy with it. That's how I have to go off and be alone. Because I had to know, especially, you know, I've been playing piano since I've been 12, but not that stuff. Just just to understand how the orchestra yeah, composed. Yeah. Yes, that's all I wanted. <laughs> and I said, okay, I love this bridge. What's it doing and why? And what are the substitute chord changes? And why is the bass? And I explored that. And I carried that into my drumming. So I go, counterpoint, counterpoint, why is it working? Balance the other side of the measure. So I use it. And the same thing happened with Abracadabra. It was the one song we didn't cut as a trio. We cut as a a quartet and Byron Allwood, the guy that did our synth work. I said, Byron, just play this and don't play anything else. Tie your other hand behind your back and just play this for four minutes, okay? Nothing else. (laughs) (laughs) I said, as a drummer, see this hand? I have to go like this and do nothing else for a while. Right, exactly. So do me, be me for a while. Let me show you what it feels like. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And he did, and, and came, that was the trick. That was a big record. And 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 just for, for all the gearheads like myself out there, um, same drum setup. We're using the snare drum, by the way, on the, on the Fly Like an Eagle. Was that Gretsch that you showed me? Um, oh, oh, oh. No. Oh. Yeah, I didn't want to, I didn't want to forget to talk about that. Wait. I got it for you. This is Rock and Me and Fly Like an Eagle. Right. Rogers Dynasty. And wait a minute. Where's the key? Let's find the key. Rogers. Yep. Dynasonic. And where'd it go? No, no, this is the Rogers. Yeah, the Gretsch has the. Gretsch has the key. But there's your. You got it? Look at that. Yeah, look at that. This is the one that was on. Eagle and uh, Keep on Rocking Me and, and yeah, all that Book stuff of Dreams. came out of that time. And then the other one that you wanted to know was where the key is. This is the original Gretsch from the Moondance stuff with Van Morrison. And let's find the key. There's the key. There it is. You know it's a Gretsch because. Yeah, snapping key holder. Yeah. I showed this to John Good. I said, hey, John, what happened? Where's my key? <laughs> I love, I, I get a couple of those drums. I love them. But, uh, great drums, brass shell. Yep. Yeah. So, so, so you know, and, and, you know, I have to say the people at, at, at Sildjian have been just great. And, and then, and John came along with, with DW and, uh, you know, I'm on board with them, but n- not much of that happened prior to that with all those records. I was, you know, I, I've, I've always kind of been somewhat the guy under the radar. I don't know how that happened. I, I assumed hey, if you do some really good work and it's kind of, you know, out there making some noise, maybe, uh, you know, somebody will come to you. But I was wrong. <laughs> so leave that one alone. I was yeah, no, I, I know. I, I, uh, I was happy to finally make contact with you. I think 30-something years ago is when I... I tracked you down. You were still in Sherman Oaks at the time. And I think you were just recording Bruce's record, Lucky Town. And, and uh, I think that, or maybe just before that, that was like our initial contact and we stayed in touch and it all happened eventually. But before we get to Bruce, because we segue to the Eddie Money stuff, which kind of came around the same time as the, as the Steve Miller stuff were just after. 
And yeah, okay. As I said right. before in the beginning, how everything just you know did yep. that. It, it didn't just become a chapter. It was just all you know, more like you know, a, a cake batter of just yeah, yeah. activity, and everybody was moving all over the place, and that's still what happened. But the well, I was just going. I was going to make an observ quick observation. Oh. And I, I noticed this a long time ago, and, it, and it's and I think it's really cool that um, the intro, well, the drum fill that you play, and two tickets to paradise, that incredible break at the beginning of the tune, yeah. it's it's sort of a loose derivative of the second big fill in Swingtown. Do you know? Yes. Do you know? And I always love, and I pointed that out to other drummers, and I've said it's it's Gary Maliver. And it's in the, you know, not that you're copying it, but it's like it's it's poetic license because you wrote these beats and these fills. So you kind of took a similar idea and even made it cooler and two tickets to paradise that. Yeah, I, I, I the, the Eddie Money story is unto itself something very, very different because, you know, again, I could spend an hour on this and let me try to edit it down because, uh, you know, we just lost Eddie back. In September, and and yeah. I knew that happened. That was happening way before it happened because the family Eddie lived six miles away from me up here in Agora, <clears throat> and I go back to those earliest years with Eddie. Um, I'm going to try to encapsulate this. It's, I could go on for an hour. I won't. But really, what happened there was once again it was my work. Wonderful producer and engineer Bruce Botnick. He produced the Doors. And yeah. I started working with Bruce. I worked with Bruce, with Kenny Loggins, and we did the opening theme for Caddyshack, I'm All Right Stuff. And I always, always, always got to the best work with, with Botnick. He just would talk about it. We'd discuss it. There, would, there was no, And then there I go again. I'm working with this engineer. His name is Andy Johns, and that was the guy that was responsible for that you know that rock band from England? You know those guys? Those I, know those. Yeah, you know I know about Zeppelin, those. Yeah, I know about Zeppelin, those Zepp guys? Yeah. yeah. And there I am working work. with, yeah, there I am working with Andy and his engineer. And it was, to be fair, it was, you know, Glenn Johns and Andy Johns were, and, and Jeff Emmerich and Chris Kimsey. They were some of the biggest engineers that came out of England. And I worked with them all. And I was like, wow. I said, Andy. I said, okay, here we go. <laughs> And, you know, those were the era, that was the era where uh, Eddie was becoming Eddie from Eddie Mahoney to Eddie Money. And um, no, he was not a cop. He was going to train to be one, but he went on to put his band together and then they were working up in Berkeley. Okay. And I'm really editing. And uh, all of a sudden we get a call and because uh, I knew Bill Graham from that era and Bill was managing Eddie and it was like, uh, um, we want the Steve Miller band rhythm section. Well, there wasn't just a rhythm section. It was just a trio. It was just me and Lonnie. Yeah. yeah. So we said, yeah, I said, okay, here we go. And, and so Lonnie came down and we started working with Eddie, uh, rehearsing a little bit and, and, and Botic was making the calls. And I remember the most, the, the, the most strategic point in working with Eddie, especially I did the first five albums with him and, the first three and a little more on four and a little more on five. But I, the, the launching records, I remember telling Bruce, I pulled him aside one night, him and Andy, and, and I said, after listening to Eddie sing, I said, look, look, this guy, this guy, 
he's got R&B in him. He's a soulful, there's something going on with this guy. He's not just cranking, you know, just, just, he, there's, he's feeling his words in his, there's, I said, I said, would you mind if I approach this record? Um, And I, I, through the portal of R&B first, and then through rock and roll. Can I go the other way with it? Can I take an R&B approach, then apply the rock and roll to it? But with R&B in mind, he said, okay, yeah, go ahead. (laughs) I said, it's just something that I image, you know, because Eddie's got this quality that I heard in him. I said, you know, he's just got something else going on here. So let's approach this a different way. And that's how I approached that record. And we knocked out, you know, Baby Hold On to Me and Two Tickets to Paradise and everything like that. And that's how I would discuss it with Lonnie. I'd say, you know, think R&B first, then think, then go to rock and roll. R&B first, go to rock and roll. Instead yeah, of rock yeah. and roll, then R&B. Go the other way with it. Just image it a little bit differently so that it provides a different outcome. Yeah, no, it's, those are, and, and um, I think I'm in love, too. I mean, another huge uh, single. What a, what a song. And I had Andy Johns engineering it, and at that point I was like going, oh, I don't have anything to worry about Andy's going to be engineering my drum kit and and him and Andy would you know at the end of the night Eddie would look at Andy and go come on Andy come on give me the big beat man the big beat every day I want the big beat you know and now both of my guys are not with us anymore and I yeah I, I miss them horribly yeah. yeah giants you know yeah. absolute giants yeah. yeah but how great that you work with these guys Gary you uh, know I mean like man and that's and that's the guys we've talked about is it's the tip of the iceberg too. Let's talk about so. I guess maybe just fast forward a little bit to talking about Bruce working on on um, Ghost of Tom Joad and Lucky Town and yeah and that the, that came out of that kind of came out of left field in the early nineties with uh, I was actually I see I had you know I respect. Chuck Plotkin and, and I worked with Toby Scott and they were from a studio in Hollywood called Clover. And I knew them back in the seventies when everybody was just on fire crazed. And we did some work in there with Steve Cropper and it was pretty cool. And, and everybody then went their separate ways as we do. Yeah. And uh, so I'm, I'm doing a showcase for somebody at the, at the China club in Hollywood one night. And at the end of the night it came out pretty good at the end of the night, uh, I see Chuck Plotkin at the end of the kind of in the audience and he's, and he's looking at me and he's kind of smiling and waving at him. And I had already known that Bruce was in town and they were cutting what was human touch mm. and they finished it as a session record. I said, Oh, okay, great. And all of a sudden I'm seeing Chuck over there and he's smiling and I'm going, Oh, it's something. What's going on? And I look at Chuck and I'm going, are you here for a reason? He goes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I am. (laughs) What's going on? He goes, well, Mr. Springsteen, being as prolific as that man is, man, is he good. Uh, He's got a whole nother album written. And I was like, okay. Really? Well, okay. Uh, in two weeks, 
I want you at the record plant Monday morning, nine o'clock. Bring your own drums. Okay. No delivery. Bring your own drums. Bring your own drums. And I did. So I got prepared. And I said, okay, I'm already in shape pretty good, but I, 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 I've, been, I've been coaching hockey and playing hockey for a long time because that's what we did in Buffalo, New York. We skated on the streets. And I don't know how I'm still here, but it was deadly. You shouldn't. Yeah, it was totally. Let's not go there. Let's not talk about it. So I hit the ice two weeks prior to that. And I, I said, I'm going to do some workout, really, because I know Bruce can do a four hour concert and still do another hour. Yeah, I said, yeah. wait a minute. I'm going to be I'm going to be on. I'm not letting this one go by. Are you kidding me? So record wow. plant. Yeah. And there we were, and and Toby Scott was engineering, and 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 it was really Toby and Chuck that really brought me in. Mm-hmm. I, I credit them; they they brought me in, and and then Bruce knew my discography already. What, and and they brought me in, and we started on a Monday morning, and Bruce had uh, Bruce's people had booked three weeks, three five day weeks. We started on a Monday morning. And Wednesday night at midnight, we were done. 11 Are you something. kidding? No. Wow. No, I, I just said, I'm going to slug until he's not going to see me panting at all. So the first day we did three. The next day we did four and wrapped it up. And, wow. and we came back Thursday and I think we redid one of them. And, and, and that became the album Lucky Town. And they're playing the hell out of it. Yeah, and I was oh, yeah. just so. I was going. How does all this happen? I, 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 as I said before in the beginning of this, I said, "Look, I just want to be in one band, you know, and just <laughs> make a run at this." And I, I'm serious. That's all I wanted yeah. to do. It was just, you know, I didn't get that one band, but I got twenty. Yeah, and, it worked out pretty well. I that guy that knew how to sing and write. My God, I'm going. Okay, um, pinch. I'm going, how did this work? What? That? And then it went on for a bunch more years. We did The Ghost of Tom Joad, which was right. delightful. And then I worked on with Patty, his wife, on her record called Rumble Doll. And uh, that's, I think there was a little scuffle between him and the E Street guys. And, and I didn't want to get involved in that. I wasn't. And, and whatever yeah. it was, was something that had nothing to do with me. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. You were hired to come in and come in and, yeah. and, and, and knock it off. Yeah. And I, once again, there was no click track. There's none of that stuff. It was Bruce's uh, uh, shadow guitars that were in, in place in a vocal. So see, because I, I just need to know how much amperage I'm going to give my drumming and how much velocity that is wanted to. And, and Toby engineered and Bob, Mar- Bob Clear Mountain mixed it. Mm, so not, not bad company. With, with good. Yeah. Yeah. But once again, my read on it had to be, look, how much, how much force, how much amperage am I putting in here? Mm -hmm. And and once again, I asked Bruce, I said, can I put a couple fills in before the downbeat? He goes, yeah, go ahead. He was wonderful. (laughs) I mean, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, dude. Yeah. We come back and I'm sitting next to him and and so he goes, okay, what do you think? I go, you okay with those fills? He goes, well, we were 
they connected two 24-track machines together. So, you know, we didn't have a full Pro Tools set up and, and all that. So two 24s in sync, so they would just unplug eight tracks, unplug, plug them in, run again, unplug, plug them in. So you could wow. do a playlist of three takes. Yeah, and, and that's how you did it. Pick and choose your because you had two twenty fours in sync. So okay, then you could pick and choose. Okay, let's do that and take yeah. that. So what do you think of it? Yeah. Good. Okay. That's cool, man. Yeah, it was. It was, then I went home and I was like, "What? What just happened? <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that real? Real? <laughs> three days. That, that's amazing. I. I Wow. Yeah, and, and I'm like, yeah. okay, all right, uh, let's let's keep going, and and here I am, and I'm 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 still going. I've got four original projects on the griddle right now, and I'm liking, I'm loving this. I'm like going, oh my god. So I'm 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 involved in 41 compositions right now, and yeah, it's thrilling. It's just like. Okay, the industry has completely changed, and I don't want to talk about that because we're going to get into some. Yeah, but you, but talk about some of these things you're doing because you, yeah, talk about some of these things because you've been you've been working you've had a home studio for as long as I can remember since seventy seven. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I I work with some of the, the best engineers in the world, and uh, and I work with Mick Kozowski, and Mick Kozowski's mixed so many hits. You know, and 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 Botnik worked with the Doors, and and when some of that early, uh, the early A-track uh, gas game came out, I said, "Well, that looks interesting," you know, because you could never get to the gear. The yeah. gear was always somewhat, you know, fifteen rungs up on the ladder in order to get to it. You had to, you know, beg and become an artist. Or how did I get to that gear? We need the gear here. Bring it down. Now we don't even want to talk about it. Now it's like ridiculous. But then yeah. I said, "Okay, I'm going to go for that. Let's see what happens." Miller liked that. He goes, "Yeah, experiment on it, machine." I, so Mick Kozowski at the time came up out of Rochester, New York, and came out here in, in L.A. and he just mixes constantly, you know, everything. I said, "Mick, can you help me set this up? What do you think?" He goes, "Yeah, it'll work." I said, well, most of the people are calling this stuff toys. I said, I don't think it's a toy. <laughs> that was the machine that Abracadabra material came out of. My studio. Oh, okay. That same machine, 80% of the material that went on Abracadabra came off that machine. Wow. Wasn't a toy. Was not a toy. No, no it wasn't a toy. No, he, just right gave hand, couple, he gave me a couple rules to abide by. He goes, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, don't. And please don't distort. I'll show you how not to distort. I said thank you. Okay. Wow. And so and so now you know like you're. It it's gotten so crazy between what's going on with the pandemic and just the business and all that crazy stuff. But but you you're as busy as ever just with people needing your drums on tracks and. Yeah. Every time I talk to you, you you're telling me you've got like, you just finished, three CDs and. Band from England just sent me their their entire uh, all of their uh, the Pro Tools uh, stems yep. and everything. So they want me to put drums on their whole record. So that's one of the next projects. But everything else is just 
everything else is going to be uh, uh, original composition. And finally, I'm being a good boy now. I'm going to do my homework. Uh, my website was horribly uh, disregarded by me for the last 15 years. Well, so I got a girl up in my hometown, and, and I, I said, Robin, um, I am really missing a lot of stuff. She goes, yeah, I think it's time we uh, brought that thing up. So we are in the process of a total redo, remodel, and I'm going to list everything, put it all out there, because there's so much that I was part of, you know, with, with all the music, a lot of stuff that people don't even know about. That I, I mean, I wound up working... Uh, on an album called Kiko with uh, with Los Lobos, which was one I love them. Yeah, you know, me it, too. Yeah. One song called uh, uh, "Wake Up Dolores," which they've been playing. It's one of their main tunes now that they played. We just made it up on the spot with uh, uh, David Hidalgo and uh, uh, Mitchell Frome and Chad yeah. Blake were on board with that one, and I was like, "Wow." I love those guys. Yeah, yeah, great band. Right. I, I know there's so much, and and we're we're at the ninety minute mark, and uh, okay, and we, okay, okay. But I was just going to say we, we'll have to do another one. If I could twist your arm to do another one of these, and we'll we'll cover a bunch of other things we didn't get to this time. Any questions from anybody? Uh, you know, I'd rather I'd rather be accurate and and tell everybody exactly the story of what happened because uh, um, some of it's astounding. They, they don't realize really yeah. what what took place, you know, and uh, and how something was achieved. I mean, I could talk forever on achieving sounds and how I would purposely. I mean, I was trying years ago to make a pickle or snare drum be sound like a coffee can, but it was not accepted. It was like, mm, no, that yeah. doesn't sound like a snare drum. Right, right. So I said, well, you know, now a lot of the rap guys and a lot of the, the, the live players are, make their snare drum sound like a, a popping coffee right. can. Whoa, that thing is tight and gone. And I wanted to do that years ago, you know. So, But that was at a time, like you say, when, you know, there was a there was a snare sound. It was not that sound. It was a... Yeah, but I got away with the China, huh? Yeah, you got away big time with the channel. That one's not going to... Oh, and the other one on, on Fly Like an Eagle. I had to make sure that that ride cymbal was heard, so that's why I pushed and pulled those microphones. He goes, what are you doing? I said, I want that bell cymbal to be heard. You're not... This is... We're not doing that. It's going to be heard. Oh, and that's how it happened. And this one... Is there another cymbal, another cracked crash cymbal that's on Fly Like an Eagle besides the china that's just like a... Yes, uh, I, the other one, I use it on Take the Money One, and I call that my protractor. Yes. Okay. Half a symbol. Yes. It's in a warehouse. It's in my other anvil case. And I'll grab it for you and let you see it. What I had to do once is, you know, the protractor, of course, for the early days of when we actually used to do that stuff. Yeah. Instead of yeah. computer. Okay. So the whole symbol was just about, and I, it was going to be a loss. So I, cut the sides of it with tin snips and I brought it in and it was a protractor with the bell and I put it up there. I said, well, if it's going to continue to crack, it will. And that became the one on Take the Money Room. Yeah. And it was short. Yeah. It was a very short and it would just, it would just stop because the, it couldn't ring. Well, you know, all the companies are making a symbol like that now. It yeah, I like want that. a royalty. You should get one. I asked all you want. You know what? I if want I, I asked. I said, 
look, you know, really, guys, I don't think a symbol has to be round. You can put whole, look, look what I do to my symbols because I'm trying to salvage them. So I cut it out and I drill holes in them. And, and, and yeah. you know, well, Zildjian's got the one with the holes and the ovals in them. And I'm going, but I did that out of necessity. That's the sound. Exactly. That's the sound. There, that's the sound you had back then. It's yeah. That yeah. Short, yeah. trashy. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. And making my engineer. And and before he, we start off. He would just hated <laughs> just saying, you're gonna get yours, sir. You watch. We're gonna change these sounds up. <laughs> Man, what great sounds though. I mean, it just it revolutionized so much at a time when it was nothing like that, you know, it's. Yeah, I, I know, you, you know, and a lot of that was, uh, it was so, you know, we basically engineered that record and we were moving mics around. I was doing, breaking some rules and saying some, well, look, if I wanted to do that, let's just, let's, let's make it do sound like what we're hearing and whether or not, I don't care where the mic is, we'll, we'll make it, you know, that, you know, yeah. we just take that for granted today now. It's just. It's what Joff Emmerich did with the Beatles. He wasn't even allowed to move a microphone. Right. You ever read her story? And you're going, no. Oh, you got to read his story. You go, what? You're going, here's a band that's completely changing the entire world of music. And they literally were not allowed to do certain things. Because Abbey Road, and, the pe and, people at Abbey Road wouldn't. Yeah, and, you, and you're reading this stuff and you're going, and you're going, what? Are you serious? Yeah, you're not believing. You're... I've heard this the stories oh. of the guys wearing like white lab coats and you know. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. White lab yeah. coat. They couldn't move the microphone, and, and then and so, so Emmer just said, "Well, I'll I'll work when no one's there," and then he just disrupted the room and did a, all that. I'm going, ah, my hero. It's, it's kind of like what you do. Yeah, we should hang out together. <laughs> I was going to say. I mean, you're working with a band that's changing the whole world. You've got to be kidding me that they were that restrictive. I know. On those guys. You know, and they would even shut down the commissary. What? what? You mean they couldn't get a little spot of tea? <laughs> <laughs> Give them a break, will you? They're just making you some money. Oh, man. Oh, All well, right. Gary, How thank doing? you so much for doing this. This is great, man. I, I will. We should probably wrap it, but um, I just want to thank you for doing this. I know everybody watching, we got lots and lots of people watching, and, and I know they're all thankful. And and if you just joined, you can watch the um, recording of this, obviously. If you didn't catch the whole thing live, you can rewind it and watch it. And uh, Gary Malibur is one of my absolute